Did you ever think of a friend that you haven't spoken to in a long time, and this friend randomly calls you out of the blue at that moment that led you to an awesome opportunity for you? Or you were in the middle of a major life decision and you saw or heard something that made you think of which way to go? I'm a firm believer that there is no such thing as a coincidence and that serendipities do lead to your success. I'm Amira Gad. I'm hosting this podcast because I've always had the most bizarre but hilarious serendipities and realized that what you resist persists. I'm interviewing successful individuals about their serendipities and how they led them to who they are now. Expect to be blown away by ironies, laugh, and also be inspired by their unique stories from this podcast every week. I hope you enjoy it and that it'll make you smile as well inspire you to pay attention to the doors that will lead you to your success. Hello, everybody. This is Amira Gad with Serendipities to Success. I have here Mr. Andrew Gerard. Hello. He, hello. <laughs> I'm so honored to have you. I have you here today because I've heard so many amazing things about you. And I've heard that you're the guy to talk to about your own sets of serendipities, synchronicities, and coincidences. And I didn't ask you anything about it. I don't know anything about it. And here we are. I'm discovering it along the way with listeners. So, Andrew, you're a photographer, you're a musician. And obviously, now that I'm knowing that you are a magician as well, mm. you are a director of photography or like you say, the fancy word cinematographer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just the fancy word. Cinematographer is just basically a filmmaker, somebody capturing light and, and in charge of that, that process. Yeah, I'm yeah. happy with what anybody calls me. As long as they call me, I'm happy. How about you tell me what you like to call yourself? You know, it's funny that you bring that up because this has kind of been an ongoing joke through my life. And because I didn't really get into where I am now through like schooling. I dropped out of school in grade eight. So I don't have any college. I didn't even finish high school, which is really crazy. And there was a time in my life where I tried to hide that and never want anybody to know that. And the world's changed so much since then. Now I think it's, it's encouraging for people to see that there's lots of routes to get to where you need to go and you'd have to find your own way. But for many years, all the professions I went through and discovering myself and where my heart was at and where my passion lies. And in this case, passions, I had multiple. I had to get a business card made. And the guy said, what do you want to put on the business card? And I go, that's a really good question. Because at that point I had been you know, I was a hairstylist for 10 years in the salon and, and I can uh, see your hair. I had been, yeah, and I, I still get to come on here, which is great. I got a guy now, I go to Omar, shout out to Omar. But yeah, I had been a musician, a guitar player, uh, a hairstylist, a photographer, an actor, a magician, and hypnotist, a television producer. And I'm like, and so I just wrote on the card, I go, just write man about town. I don't know what to write. I don't, today I still don't have a business card. I never got one because I think it's, you know, Growing up, everyone used to say when I was a kid, I, they don't want to be put a, a label on them or don't put me in a box, you know, like yes. people are more intricate than labels and boxes. And I still today agree with that. So I think, you know, you just do you and, and do your thing. And as cert, certain people know me as a photographer. Certain people know me from television, obviously, from the Mind Freak show. And on television, I kept my name as Gerard. I didn't say Andrew Gerard. So just Gerard for TV to keep it simple and also to keep some privacy back then. So when sometimes when people see me and they go, Gerard, I know that they know me from TV. 
because you know or if people say oh andrew gerard yeah then they're probably talking about photography or you know yeah so it's like different aliases i guess you could say of my own name and the truth is my full name is andrew gerard henderson andrew gerard is my first name it's a hyphenated name so people have often called me mr gerard but anyway to answer your question yeah i still don't have a title for myself and i kind of i don't I don't like the label of being what I do for a living. People know me from different hats from different genres that I, I work in. And yeah, I think each one is special and unique. So I wouldn't want one to dominate the other, you know? Yeah, it's funny too, because I just called you Gerard. <laughs> so Gerard yeah. yeah, I'm no, calling you Gerard. So. <laughs> as long as you call me, I'm happy. That's so it. If I call, yeah, if you hear the name Gerard, you're, you're probably going to say, oh, Amira, Amira's here somewhere. <laughs> yeah, Amira's here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah. So that's cool. So speaking about serendipities, now that you're saying that you don't like to have a box on you, right? So did you discover all of those titles by coincidence? Like, did they all come because one thing led to another or like, how can you just tell us how you became one from the other? Sure. Well, my kind of philosophy that I've kind of built over the years is I love to use the analogy uh, of a river because I think life is just like traveling down a river and all rivers have a direction. And, and the current and these rivers twist and turn. Sometimes there's easy straight bits that are flat and calm waters. Yes. Other times it gets rocky yeah. and they twist and turn. And sometimes the river breaks off into little streams and maybe you have to make a decision to change your course. And maybe sometimes you turn around and try and fight the current and you try and swim the wrong way and it's hard and it's rough. And that's when life really beats you down until you realize you're not going the right way and you turn around. And my life has been exactly that. It's been, everything has been a one thing leads to another. So if I zoom out from this thought for a moment, everything happened because of one word in my life. And the word was yes. Every time I said yes to an opportunity or yes to an experience, a door opened up. And I'll use another analogy here because this is the only two analogies I'll use this whole podcast because they're the only two that I use or that I need. If you open up a door, it leads to a hallway and that hallway has many more doors and each one of those doors lead to hallways. So the idea here is every time you say yes, you open a door to more opportunities opportunities and possibilities. When you say no, the door vanishes and you're stuck in a room alone. So if one thing that I've learned in my life is you don't necessarily need to say yes every time, but the first reaction should not be no and prove to me why I should say yes. It should be your, your, your mindset has to be of that. How can I make this work? What can I do to make this a positive yes and go down that, 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 that hallway. So it started out when I was very young, my father, who I, I knew only until I was 12, and there'll be more on that later, uh, was a magician amongst other things. Like myself, he was kind of a, he was a polymath and, and literally a genius. And uh, so he played classical guitar and ran the Royal Conservatory of Music in Canada. And uh, so he spoke several languages. He was an engineer, an architect, a computer programmer, a magician. So I had this kind of man that all these talents and all these things that I remember at a young age, my mom said he played guitar to, to her belly when I was still inside of her. So oh. it's no doubt today that I play guitar. And, but the funny thing is he never taught me guitar. I didn't learn guitar till long after he was gone from my life. So, or magic, all these things. So, but the seed, I think when you're young, I think whatever we expose young kids to is, is a seed that's planted. That's going to come back later. And anybody watching this, if you're older than, 30 years old, the odds are you're probably getting back to interest that you had when you were a child, whatever it was that you left, you picked it up again and you found yourself. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's very, that's very serendipitous too. So I think I remember one time specifically being a kid, my dad had this room full of magic books, books like I have down there. 
And I remember he told me, never look in those books. You're not allowed to touch those books because they held secrets of magic. And I remember sneaking in one day, of course, being a curious kid and looking at one and he caught me and he took the page from the book and he ripped it out and he gave it to me. And he says, here, this is, this is all you get. And the book described the method of how to do a trick. And it was with a deck of cards and it describes something. If there's any magicians here watching what's called a second deal. Anyway, it's a technical move you can do with a deck of cards to keep control of the card on top of the deck. So, and, but apparently dealing out cards. So I said, okay. And I, and, and, but there was no description of the trick, just the how to, but I didn't know what I was supposed to do with this tool. Now it's like somebody giving you a hammer and you don't know what a hammer is. And you're like, what can I build with this? So my mind started to create effects and demonstrations I could do using this tool that I'd read on the last paragraph of this page. And it wasn't until three months later that I got to go back and read the description of the trick. And by that time I'd already created about 10 or 20 different magic tricks using just this one tool of my own for my own brain. So, and I didn't know at that time that that was the start of the seed planted of me being a creative because here I am, you know, 45 years later, I work creating television. I create magic tricks for some of the biggest names in, in TV, like David Blaine and Chris Angel and dropping those names. But that's what I, I made my living doing. And it all started there with that one little moment of curiosity, you know? And so, yeah, I, I grew up loving magic, but never doing it. And then I picked up a guitar when I was a teenager and I was a sure, here's a fun fact about me. If uh, that not many people know, I don't think I've ever talked about this in an interview. I was the shortest kid in school up until grade five or six. I was short and I was really chubby and I had glasses and I had a jacket with the hoodie up and I used to sit in the back and just hide. And I was such a shy kid, very creative. I used to love to go home and draw and paint and sing and dance and all. But at school, I was just traumatized by, by I couldn't, couldn't cope. And over one summer, I went through a growth spurt where my legs hurt. I, I, they would grow in the middle of the night. I would be screaming in pain and my hair grew longer. <laughs> and I went back to school. I swear to God, like two inches taller and I lost all this baby fat weight and my hair was longer. And I went to the music room and I picked up an electric guitar and I started playing, you know, Van Halen or something like some, some mute. And all the kids were like, who's the new kid in school, but they didn't know <laughs> because they had, hadn't, you know, they, had, they didn't recognize me. And I almost didn't recognize myself. So I learned then the lesson from that experience was that you can reinvent yourself, but it ha- you have to give yourself permission. Nobody can do it for you. There's no, Today, there's life coaches and programs and everything to change who you are. Nothing, there's nothing wrong with you. There's, you have to be able to dial yourself in and it has to come from you. You have to be your own life coach. And I realized that at at that moment, the biggest tool I had was to sacrifice who I was for who I could become. And I always knew at any moment now I can abandon something and I'm not married to any particular idea because there's always a better one. And at the same time to appreciate what you have. So there's a fine balance there. And so that took me through my teenage years. And, uh, and then I got into a band and started playing and I had long hair and I played in this complete 1989, you know, rock glam band with long hair and all the bracelets and ripped jeans and playing uh, with a band uh, called Anthem. And we were from Vancouver Island, uh, Victoria from our little hometown. And we ended up playing and, and over a few years, we went from playing small parties to bars and bigger gigs. And then it ended up, we played this place called the GR Perks Arena. I think it was like 5,000 people, which seemed like a million back then. And there we were on stage with like nothing playing in front of these people. And we felt in our hearts, that was it. We made it. We were, you know, and, uh, and then I left Vancouver Island and came to Vancouver 
to do music. And then when I got into music here, my attention shifted into a hairdressing because my ex-girlfriend was a hairstylist at that time. And so I'd always had long hair and I'd always loved fashion and style. So before I left Victoria, I'd gone to hair school and became a hairdresser and got my license. So when I got to Vancouver, that was it. I started hairdressing. It was 1997, something like that. And uh, I started hairdressing and I started working out and uh, at the gym and got into doing uh, bodybuilding stuff. And then it became a model, which was funny just for <laughs> a short period of time. And it That's was by cool. accident, by accident. At the yeah, time. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, I was in the salon and I was cutting this guy's hair. He was a model. His name was Ed. And there was a fashion show for the Vancouver Community College. And I remember he was modeling for the, this fashion show and they needed another male model. And so he said, hey, do you want to do this? And I'm like, what do I got to do? And he's like, just walk around and surfing and snowboard gear in your underwear on a stage. And <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I went, wow. I said, OK, so I did. So I went out. And of course, everybody there is a real model. I'm the only fake one and back and people are backstage. I'm looking around. I'm doing the stuff and makeup. And then I go and you got to walk to the end and back. And there was no rehearsal. And I didn't know you're supposed to just walk cool and not look at anybody. So I ended up walking out saying hi to people. And I say, hey, high five people, <laughs> the other models. And the people are like, what is this kid doing? And I had like white, blonde, crazy, you know, hair. And it was super tanned and, and it was super crazy. So I did it my own way but it became kind of a style thing. So people ended up going, Hey, that guy is like the, you know, this blonde surfer kind of wild model guy. So I ended up getting some work and, and doing some more after that, which was kind of funny. But at that point, because you became like you did yourself. Like, this is what I like about this yeah. is because you were yourself yeah. and it brought opportunities because you did yourself as opposed yeah. to if you imitated everybody else, it would have been redundant. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, well, I wouldn't have stood yeah. out. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't stand out. You wouldn't out. have stood out. Yeah. Yeah, and my so my success in, the, in these things was from kind of like from ignorance, kind of like not knowing what I'm supposed to do, and you just kind of work it out your own way. And even today, I, I still do that. You know, later down the story, I'll tell you about how I started perfuming uh, just the last couple of years, making perfume and fragrance. And I'm not trained in that either. I I, I have a friend; he's a, a master perfumer. He's amazing, named uh, Melig, Michael Melig, and Matthew. Sorry, Matthew Melig. And he he said, "Oh, I can teach you to mix these chemicals." I go, "Let me just sniff and play on my own." And then when I need help, I'll come to you because I love the idea of discovery and adventure and yes. not knowing, you know? So anyway, yeah. So after I came to Vancouver, I got into hairdressing and that took off. I ended up winning some awards as hairdresser in Canada for style. Oh my God, look and, at that. And, and, <laughs> and it was weird because, you know, I'd been a model, I'd been a stylist and I'd worked on lots of magazine photo shoots, but never as the photographer. I had no interest in being a photographer. I loved all of this aspects about it, but not photography. And, um, then I got married. And of course, that changed my life a little bit, being married and thinking, okay, I can pursue stuff. I started to get back into magic more and perform. And I thought, you know what, I want to, I want to do magic full time. Now, I'd never stopped doing magic, but I want to do this. And I put it in my head. I go, I'm going to play in Las Vegas. That's the dream for me is to play on a stage in Las Vegas. And I started working and do, performing at little cafes for friends and then in bars and restaurants. And then a couple of bars said, Hey, do you want to come back here on Friday and do a show for Sure. I ended up doing Friday nights at this little martini lounge for like two years. And they paid me $200 an hour to do it for a couple hours. Please. So I thought, damn, this is now profitable. I'm getting paid to do something I love. Yes. Because my yeah. first instinct wasn't, I need to make money from this. My first instinct was I need to find out what I love and do that. Yeah. Because I've always found if you do what you love, the money will come. People are interested in passionate Absolutely. people. I've seen it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think people realize this now. And, and so I was 
performing there. And then the very last night, the owner says, we're closing down the martini lounge. So we're going to have to, you know, we won't be, this will be our last Friday night. And serendipitously, the guy sitting right at the table and she says, you're closing? Because yeah, tomorrow. He goes, where are you going to be then next week? And I said, no, he goes, I'll tell you where you're going to be. And he handed me his card and he says, you're coming to the Shark Club in Burnaby. I'm the manager and I'd like to hire you. And I went, wow. So I went and did shows there. I met him, went the next day and did shows there Friday and Saturday nights for like two years. And then they said, can you do a big stage show once a month? And I was also a hypnotist and I was fascinated with hypnosis because when I was 12, my dad took me to see a hypnotist called Ravine, who was a Canadian hypnotist, very famous. And ever since I saw him, I go, I, I understand this. I can see myself doing this. And I was always interested in hypnosis. So through my magic career of studying mind reading and magic and hip, I studied so hypnosis. You, study for, you have to study for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I trained three years doing that at the Royal Academy and um, became a certified clinical hypnotherapist. <laughs> and, but I didn't ever want to open up a practice for therapy. I wanted just to use it for entertainment. So so interesting. But, I'm like, but, where, where do you have the time to do all this? <laughs> oh, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't have any friends, which was great, which was handy. So, <laughs> that, helps. <laughs> <laughs> that helps. So it was weird doing these little shows once a month at this little, you know, bar for like 200 people was training me. I didn't know for what was coming because it got to a point where working in the hair salon and doing magic on the weekends from like bigger shows and golf courses and now trade shows and traveling up to Whistler. And they kind of started to balance each other out. And eventually I mentioned earlier, I saw a hypnotist named Ravine when I was 12. I did a tribute to him at the end of my act. I tell the story about meeting, going to a show when I was 12 and that I hope I meet him one day. Well, I got another hypnotist was in town and he was from Las Vegas and through a mutual friend, he said, do you want to meet him and have a coffee? We talked and he, I performed for him. And he said, I can't believe you're here in Canada doing shows at these golf courses and hotels. You need to come to Vegas. And I go, that's the dream. He says, that's your dream. Oh my God. This is a big serendipity. <laughs> and so he's, and so I said, he says, you know, he goes, I, I have a show at the Riviera. Would, would you like to come and perform and headline there? And I go, yes. And he goes, come out. Can you be here July 9th? And I go, that's my birthday. Oh and my so, God. <laughs> and I go, yeah. And so I see on my tattoo, it's here July 9th, my birthday. And I show him and he goes like, wow, that's a coincidence. I go, no, I don't think it is. So I told my boss at the hair salon, I said, listen, I need to go to Vegas to perform July 9th, but I need to, I want to be there for five days because I'm going to take, and I didn't really get any vacation time back then. It wasn't like now. And the boss, you know, I had about 500 clients and it was a lot of money. If I was gone, you know, we we're making good money there. And he said, you can't take the time off you just for a show. I mean, you even getting paid for it, you know? And I said, no, no, this is my dream. And so it ended up getting to a point where he basically said, if you go, I have to fire you. Mm. And I said, okay, you don't have to fire me because I quit. And I just quit and went to go to Las Vegas for one show. And I went down there with one of my good friends, bro, another magician. Yeah. And, and I went to the hotel with him and another guy, Lon, Lon and bro. And I got to the hotel, which is the Monte Carlo I was staying in. They put me up at, and the phone rings and I picked up the phone and this voice, I go, hello. And it goes, hello, Gerard. And it was this <laughs> voice. And I recognized that voice because I'd heard it when I was 12 years old. It was the hypnotist Ravine. Oh lived, my God. He lived in That's, Las Vegas. I've heard about him. He lived in Las Vegas. He managed Lance Burton, a great magician. And he had heard about my tribute that I do at the end of the show and wanted to meet me. We went downstairs and we had lunch and I got to sit here with my hero and he wrote on a napkin. I, I, I transfer Canada's greatest hypnotist to Gerard. And he told me, he gave me some really good advice about 
never compromising on your morals and your values. And he's not with us anymore, but that stuck with me so deep. I went into the show that night, talked about him. Everybody stood up at the end and I got standing ovations half the time, but this was like a special night. And I told people, this is my dream. So I think it was like, it meant a lot to the audience and me and it was amazing. And then, and then I thought, well, geez, I'm going to have to come back. And so I came back to Vancouver and I go, what am I going to do? I don't have a job now. And I said, maybe I'm just going to do magic and try and work my way back to Vegas. That was my new intention. I said that. And uh, then there was another magician doing a lecture on the island in Victoria, where I'm from. And his name is Banachek. And we had emailed back and forth. He was a mentalist. He was doing what I was doing on a much bigger level. And my buddy, bro, who I took to Vegas, he said, let's go to the lecture. you got to meet him. And I go, when is it? And he goes, it's tonight. And I go, well, there's, we're going to, we can catch like the last ferry at like, you know, nine o'clock and get there from like 1130 and catch 30 minutes of it. And I go, let's go. So we went there, walked in and I just saw him in the hall. I said, Banachek, my name is Andrew and I'm a magician. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah. I know you. I never heard of you. And I go, wow come in. I sit down. I watch him perform. He does his lecture. Afterwards, he says, here's my number. Give me a call. You know, I'm, I'm working on a project right now that you might be perfect to help with in Vegas. You go, okay. <laughs> the next day I get a phone call and uh, I'm on the phone with him and a guy named Chris Angel. And he says, we're trying to do a show called Mind Freak. Can you come down to Vegas and help work on the show with us and, and teach Chris some of this, this stuff and, and create some magic that you're doing? So I was, that was it. I went to a plane. I was supposed to go down for three days. I stayed for eight months. I ended up becoming not only a, a consultant for the show, but I started helping out with production and became best friends with Chris. We, we, were, we were every day working together. And it was the beginning of something where, you know, we were walking around with cameras trying to get people to stop to see a magic trick. And at the end of three years later, you know, he signed a $200 million contract with Cirque du Soleil and we had, you know, thousands of people lined up to get autographs with him and we we're going on Oprah Winfrey and, oh and, and Ellen. I go, I go, I can't believe that this happened, you know, it, it's happening. Yes. And yeah. So it was pretty a uh, remarkable thing. And after that, in a nutshell, after that, I came home and I thought, what an adventure that was. Now, what am I going to do? Sure enough, the phone rings and it was David Blaine, another magician, one of the greatest magicians in the world who had heard about me through our mutual friend, Paul Harris. And he says, can you come to New York? And I go, I just got home from Vegas yesterday. He goes, all right, well, maybe the next day then. So I went to New York and ended up staying and living with him and working, helping uh, consult and produce with his amazing team of magicians and people uh, in New York for his, his show, What is Magic? Or Dive of Death, as it was called then. And, and, becoming, and then it just spiraled out from there. I ended up working with many, many of the world's top magician and mentalists. Keith Berry became a good friend. He's an Irish mentalist magician. It's been eight years now. We've worked together on shows in different countries and and then South Africa, I've met up magicians and mentalists there that flew me there and I created an entire TV series. So it's just, but if you take this web that we've just talked about for the past 10 minutes or whatever and compress it all down, it all goes back to the first moment of me saying yes to go to Riviera and do that, you know, of saying yes to performing at that little tiny little bar, you know, for $200 saying, you know, yes, that I'm going to tear a page out of my dad's magic book. If those yeses didn't happen, that wouldn't have started the, you know, the ripple effect and, and all of this stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. Domino effect in a way, like it's just one mm -hmm. thing to another. Um, and if you didn't marry your, your, who happened to be a hairdresser and you became a hairdresser. She wasn't a hairdresser. It was I mean, another a girlfriend before her. Oh, the girlfriend. Yes, yes. yes yeah. Your girlfriend. Then she, I mean, that inspired you. And if and you being a hairdresser at that moment or that time in life made you meet these type of people who brought you these opportunities. So mm -hmm. my question for you is, and this is for the listeners, uh, you know, just to help them out. You know, when you say 
say yes, it's like Jim Carrey's yeah, uh, the yes man, right? <laughs> when he no. said yes to everything. How do you know if it's a yes? How do you know if this is the right door? Because, you know, we all want something in our lives, but a lot of people don't follow their dreams because they're hesitant or it's a high risk. Obviously, like when you quit your job, like you quit your hairdressing job, which was paying you well, right. you took a very high risk. You don't know, but you knew it was a dream that you knew that this was a dream, but you didn't know the outcome, whether it's going to succeed or not. So how do you yeah. know to, to say a good yes without, you know, like just tell us. Very easy question to answer, and it sounds very difficult. I think I'll give the example. When I was hairstyling and had a career and was doing really successful with it, that was a, a success in and of itself. But it also made me realize that I have something to lose. And when you realize that you have something to lose, you are simultaneously psychologically agreeing that you are valuable that you can do it because how did you get something to lose? You did it. So if I did this, maybe I can do something else. So the confidence has to come into play because how do you recognize that yes is the right yes, right? Yeah. I would say to you, how do you recognize a shadow without a light? Oh, okay. You can't have one without the other. Yeah. How, how would you know what is what, uh, what shadows are if there's no light? Or how would you know what light is if you were in complete blackness? Do you know what I mean? You have to see it first to know Yes or no, if that's it, you have to step into it. And always, like I said before, the, the ability to sacrifice who you are for who you can become. And I forget who wrote that quote. It's a great quote, but that's a great is, quote. Yes, is, is 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 important because that sacrifice can happen at any time. In other words, if I had said, let's let's rewrite history and say, I said yes to go into the Riviera. When I got there, it was horrible. It wasn't what I expected. Then I'd sacrifice that and say no to that and go back. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's very rarely moments that I call point of no return, which is where you're going to flip a switch that you can't unflip, or you're going to, you know, walk across a bridge and then blow the bridge up. You know, like there's very, you can always walk across that bridge. You can always retrace your steps. And that is what is called learning because we learn and grow from our mistakes. Everything that you've done right in your life is a result of you doing something wrong first. So yes. I think I'll speak very quickly. I don't like to get into this type of stuff, but today's culture, this cancel culture, where people think, well, if someone's ever done anything wrong now or 10 years ago, we should wipe them off the face of the earth. Where is the room for redemption? How can people grow without failing and correcting their mistakes? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like failure is the most power. Anyone that has any success will tell you they have failed more than anybody. Yes. You, 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 you mentioned Jim Carrey, right? Like, listen to every celebrity's success story. They all have the same story. Yeah. Everybody told me, no, everyone said, you can't do this. Everybody said you were wrong. And so they are 1% of the people, which makes sense because how many musicians or actors or magicians or chefs or anything are going to make it to being the best in the world? Less than 1%. Yeah. So when you look around and everybody is saying the same thing, the odds are they're part of the bulk of the 99%. And maybe you're doing something different. So the only way that we can navigate that is to stay true to who you are, because the only thing we have going for us in this world is that we're individuals. We are ourselves. If you copy someone else, you'll just be a cheap copy at best. And there's a, that room's already taken. So yeah, so you, you really have to imagine, imagine your, your life is like a, a bullseye and, or a target, and there's a bullseye. The center of that bullseye has to be who you really are, because if you throw that dart and you land on the perimeter, uh, the peripheral, 
and you're shooting for something that isn't really you, even if you get successful, you're not going to be happy because that's not you. You need to aim for the center of your desire and your passion and spend a lot of time and think deeply about it because that is 90% of the work, just going in the right direction. It doesn't matter how fast you can swim through an ocean, how fast you can run on land or how fast you can climb a mountain if you're going the wrong way. Exactly. Yes. You know, so yeah. we need to direct ourselves in the right, in the right way. Exactly. And I think that that's, that's been one of the accidental byproducts of, of my life is that I've always managed to say yes and to, to, be, to direct myself and not, not make the wrong decision and mostly do from cutting out distractions. It's not all roses. I've sacrificed everything for that I have and like everything. Like I said, I don't have time to go. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. Oh, I'll have a cigar occasionally. That's <laughs> but but, but you, you I, keep healthy. Yeah, you stay healthy. Yeah, I say I don't go out to the bars. I don't. I, I calculated money. I would have, in my twenties and thirties partying and doing this and that and spending my money on vacations and you know all these guitars, cameras, and things that cost money. So I put my finances into things that fuel my passion, and it pays off. It takes it time. Pays, yeah, you, it's like an investment. You invested in what makes you better and what makes you who you are by the minute. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And when you, yeah. and usually people end up not investing themselves, and then they end up trying to ask other people to invest in them. And my advice is, why would I invest in you if you can't even invest in yourself? You know what I mean? Yeah. You need to, you need to be the first one to show the world Absolutely. what you Absolutely. Yes, I agree. So, you know, and even it wasn't a by, it wasn't a byproduct of my thing, but I was married for 18 years, extremely happily. And my ex-wife is still one of my best friends. She's an amazing woman. We separated just over four years ago, mutually and amicably and it was the best divorce ever and uh, we we're both completely happy and uh, it was a short time later one of my friends in um in town in vancouver here was filming predator his name's larry fong and he's a cinematographer it's a fancy word for saking filmmaker but uh, yeah he was in town filming predator and because i was i had gone through separation he's like let's hang out i want to take you out to this restaurant and we went to the restaurant and the waitress was also an actress and she uh, and I knew each other through mutual friends, I guess. We worked it out. I did a magic trick for her. I bent a quarter in her hand. <laughs> and and uh, she, she gasped for my number when we left. And we ended up hanging out. And that girl was also an actress, amazing actress, Rebecca, and became my girlfriend and my fiance. And as of January 18th this year, she became my wife. So and Aww, so now. Congratulations. And yeah, and we were, yeah, it was, it was amazing. And that just. That, and again, it was neat. I turned 50 on July 9th, my birthday. I've had a lot of really interesting things happening on my birthday, but I turned 50. We got married July 18th, and then we did our ancestry. She kind of knew hers. She turns out she was more Scottish than anything else. And, but because I didn't know my father's background since I was 12 and hadn't talked to him or any of his family since my parents split at such a young age, it broke down my ancestry. It goes, okay, you're part, you know, French and Ukrainian and a bit of Scottish and English. And I knew those. It says 60% and it says other. And when I clicked, it came down in this like little note that says, congratulations, your ancestry and DNA is shared with some of the oldest, you know, strongest people on the planet. You're a Viking, Icelandic, no way. Norway, Norwegian yes. and Swedish Viking. Yeah. And, I was like, and that hit me like a ton of bricks because, and it shows you exactly where, what areas in Iceland and stuff. And so this one area, there is a, a giant waterfall down near Vic and the Black Sand Beach, Reynosfara. And it highlights this area. It says, this is where your DNA started in 736. And I thought, wow. So it turns out just a year and a half ago, Rebecca and I and my family, we went to a trip to Iceland out of nowhere. We went to a trip and we're driving the car and I wanted to take a picture of one of these waterfalls. And the GPS goes out because it's Iceland. It's just 
so raw and wild the land right yeah. and and i'm like geez the gps is out i'm like i can find this place and we go here in two hours we drive and i drove us right around the corner big 500 foot waterfall there it is and that was where my dna started the no same. way and you had no clue how would i know I, I had no clue no no i just found so you I literally found, were I driving around it and then you discover a year and a half later that that's where my dna was from my ancestry we're vikings yeah and there's a very specific viking gene that doesn't allow you to close your fist all hand all the way my hands only open to there and it's been good for guitar but it's called viking claw so and it's from uh rowing oars it's genetic thing and also there's an enzyme in my stomach that i have that is shared with viking ancestry so so then as soon as the first thing that i look up with viking culture and history and, and the language i've started to learn all about it and i'm going back to iceland is a symbol pops up and I go, wow, that's interesting. And the symbol is on my ring and it's called the Eigish Helmer. And this is a Viking compass that says it will always guide you and lead you to safety oh through life. And this is the compass, like, and it's weird. I go, a compass. I go, I found my, in Iceland, I found this waterfall <laughs> with no GPS. Like Wait, I had so my- Did you have this ring before or after you- No, after, after I found oh, it after, after. Okay. the Helmer. It's yeah. a really pretty compass. <laughs> Yeah, it's a pretty compass. Yeah. And they also used to tattoo it on their forehead to terrify people, I guess, in the war times, Vikings. Yeah. But but yeah, so it's, it's been amazing. Well, speaking thing. of that, and speaking of Viking, so now that you just, just found out that you're a Viking, right? Did you ever, when, you know, watching any of the movies that came out that has to do Viking, did you ever feel like you were drawn to it? Every single time. But here's the thing that gets weirder than this. I had a, a TV show I did in Cape Town in South Africa called One Day with my friend Brian Miles. He's a magician. And I flew there and lived there for a month filming with him. And being in Africa was an incredible experience. It's been everywhere around the world. Yeah. And, and so when we were there, flying there, we stopped into Dubai on the way in and out. And there was a whole bunch of Norwegian guys that got on. And they all sit down beside me and they start, hey, and they start talking to me like I'm Norwegian, right? And I'm like, oh, no, I'm Canadian. And then the guy's like, no, you're, you're Viking. I can see a face. You're Viking. <laughs> <laughs> check, your, check your DNA. You're a Viking. I tell you. Well, they did and tell I, you that. Oh, yeah, he's, and my, one of my good friends, Don McLeod, who was traveling with me, couldn't believe it. He's like, he's like, yeah, you do look like a Viking. And then, so my whole life, people have said this. I even dated a girl named Helen once and she was Swedish. And she said, oh, you look like the Viking people from Iceland. You're, you have this like, and I'm just like Viking people. What? Viking and, people. <laughs> yeah, so everyone my whole life has always told me that I look Viking. And so when I discovered my ancestry, I, I put on my Facebook, so I did my ancestry and discovered some of my, my, my DNA, any guesses to what it was. And like 135 people all put pictures of Vikings. Like everybody in the world knows, but me, I'm the last person to, I'm like, huh? So it was, uh, yeah, it was, it's amazing thing. So clicking through ancestry, I see some cousins and second cousins that are from, you know, Iceland and Norway and Sweden, and they look a lot like me. They look like family. Like I'm like, Whoa, like very, very similar, you know, appearances. And yeah, so that was kind of cool. And I had long hair as a kid and I used to tie it and shave it. So it was very, you know, it was, it was an interesting, an interesting discovery for sure. And so my wife got me this Viking coffee mug. Yeah. When you held it, I was like, it looks, it does not look. Yeah. It's handmade. It's a real wooden, real it looks, wooden Yeah. It looks really by, uh, cool. Yeah, I, mean, I love so, it. It's so interesting. It's so interesting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I've been learning lots about that, but, but you know, the weird thing is Amir is I've never ever, ever felt attached to language or culture. Like I knew my dad was part French or there's Ukrainian and, and, but I've never felt like I'm French or I'm Ukrainian. I've never felt like 
drawn and attached to that. I've kind of been a citizen of the world, you'd say. Or the world. Of, yeah, exactly. Or, the same with know? yes. Yeah, yeah. And I've never thought, but all of these, there's some like Norse Viking rules to life that you kind of, I watched and read their book and the poetry is, it, I resonate with it so much. And I don't know if it's a little psychological because I know that that's my ancestry, but everything that they're saying seems so on par with the way that I live my life, you know? And yeah, so it was a really beautiful discovery. And so I can, I can see why people are proud of their heritage and where they've come from and, and all that stuff. Cause I've never felt that I've never had that at all, you know? So it's just, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm not a, you know, and a Viking culture is a complete lost culture. You know, it's, 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 but it's, yeah, it was really amazing. That's, that's the newest self discovery, I guess, since, well, there's a bit, of, there's a couple of gaps, basically photography. There's another story. Do you want to hear the photography story? Go. I want to hear all of them. You, but before so you go I, into it, I wanted to ask you this, since you're a musician, do yeah. you think that you would consider maybe reviving some of the Viking stories in your songs or in, in like, say like a cinematic pop or a cinematic dark pop kind of? Well, yeah, because I that's think, in demand in trailers and yeah, in certain I, TV shows. I think what's interesting is at our podcast, is it audio or video or both? Both. Both. So this is interesting. This is the Agish Helmer ring. And this ring is actually magic because if I do this, it jumps back on my phone. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I just saw a magic trick for the audience. If you want to see this, you have to go on YouTube when I, when I upload it. He just literally did a magic trick. Yeah. I don't know how you did that. I swear to God, this is weird. <laughs> so yeah, to answer your to answer your question, the the I think there's been lots of great stuff done with Viking cinematic wise. Like the, the series Vikings is incredible. If you haven't seen it, go watch that. And I've also searched some Viking music and bands and these chanting, very hypnotic music. It's very dark and very heavy and, and interesting. But I've I, I managed to buy a book. And it was a book of Viking poetry, and it's a hardcover book that I've got. And it's really been inspired. It's been inspiring a lot of lyrics and music lately. One of the biggest thing is the idea of the, the norms, which are these three women that weave fabric of time, and they, they weave your fate. And so everything they believe has already happened. It's already fate. You're fated. So you have to just be true to yourself because that's your fate and destiny. And I can see why cultures believe that and do that because it's very comforting to think, you know, it's already been written and it doesn't excuse you from personal responsibility. It actually makes it more so because now you have to live to your fate. You have to be responsible and not go against yeah. your fate. Yeah. So, yeah, so it has been really, really inspiring. Absolutely. But so in, we'll have to rewind time now to 2011, Halloween. It's my, my least favorite holiday and you'll see why. And uh, I was playing in my band and we had a jam studio and we were going to paint one of the walls black that gotten beat up. And so I went by Home Depot in my little car. I had a little sports car. It's called the 3000 GT. It was kind of a rare little two-door sports car. And I loved it. Did you have a name for it? Huh? No. No, no, I don't. I have a name for all my other cars. I have a motorcycle called Goldie and, and yeah, but I was driving back from Home Depot getting some paint and it was in the hatchback and I was driving and traffic starts to slow down and I look in my rear view and this big truck, like a big truck comes flying in and hit me in the back, launched the can of paint, hit me in the head oh my and God. pushed my eye to almost detach my retina, separated my shoulder, gave me a brain injury and I was done. And I couldn't. And at that point I was supposed to fly out to go to a TV show five days from then. And it was on Halloween, you said, right? What's that? It was on Halloween. Yeah. On Halloween at three o'clock. And, and so it was a very foggy time, but basically over the next year and a half, 
I was in concussion therapy recovery and I had what's called a TBI traumatic brain injury. So a lot of my motor skills were messed up. I couldn't focus and remember on anything. I didn't know, like, couldn't tell you my address or, you know, when you go to plug the parking meter, the number you have to plug into your app, I couldn't remember it after seeing it. So I couldn't part. It was like my brain, I'd get overwhelmed and I couldn't go outside for a long time. And I was on a couch and I ended up gaining a lot of weight and became, you know, not severely depressed because I was kind of a happy person throughout, but it was, it was hell. And it took like, you know, a couple of years and I still didn't get everything back that I had. Some multitasking things are hard. So now I just focus on one thing instead of 10 at a time. Yeah. And then I talk a lot slower now, <laughs> believe it or not, I used to talk a lot faster. You, you talk too fast already. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But, but, but yeah, so that, that, that was quite the life-changing moment for me. That really knocked me down because I was on TV and I was performing and doing magic and I hadn't touched a camera. And I remember being at home, sitting on the couch, trying to recover. And I watched a YouTube video and it was a photographer at that time. He was 39, same age as me. And his name was Trey Radcliffe. And he was an HDR photographer and he was giving this talk on the news or something in the States. And he said, he said that he was a computer programmer for years up until two years ago. And he rediscovered his passion of creativity through photography. He goes, I picked up a camera and I just started tweaking and doing it. And he goes, somewhere out there watching it right now is a creative, someone that's done something. They've worked in somehow aesthetics or something and they have a creative mind. And if they pick up a camera, they could be the world's next greatest photographer, I'm telling you. And I felt like he was talking to me probably because of the brain injury. I didn't know anything about a camera. So I thought I wanna do this. And so I researched on eBay and looking cameras and I found, uh, did my homework and I found a camera by Sony called the, the Sony, it's a little pocket mirrorless one. I can't remember what it's called though. Anyway, it was the world's the RX100. That's what it was called. And it was a, a sensor and a little camera. And it was in like Time's top 50 inventions of all time at Beto at the Mars Land Rover. It was so amazing, this little camera. I found one on eBay for like three or $400 and I bought it. And I hobbled across the street from my house to the beach, you know, taking pictures of the ocean and things. And it was horrible. The sky is blown out. I couldn't see. There was a seagull in the lens, blurry and all this <laughs> stuff. And I didn't know how to do it. But on the back of the camera, there is a question mark. And it was a little help button. So if you need to help, you press the question mark and it tells you about the scene that you're shooting and helps you to adjust it automatically. And so I'd look and start, the camera was answering my questions and I started to kind of like learn how to expose a photograph and how, what it meant, shutter speed and aperture and ISO and all. And so I ran, I spent the next two or three months running back and forth from my house to the beach, taking pictures and developing them in my computer. And, and it was my obsession, you know? And then one of my good friends, bro, again, had said, why don't you come over to the island of Sunshine Coast? Sorry, it's not an island, Sunshine Coast, and, and hang out. So I went there, and he had a beach place, beachfront cabin, and there was a boat called the Floozy. It was a little dinghy, a little wooden boat, and I took a picture of it, and it was a beautiful picture at sunset. And to this day, it's one of my favorite photos I ever took. It was my first great photo. It's the first time I went, wow, I just did something that's better than me. Like, you know, and about a month or so later, this is now getting into almost a year of photography. My agent calls me and says, hey, Google wants to do an interview. And I'm like, about what? I haven't done a TV show. And he's like, about your photography. Google Plus wants to have you on about your photography. I'm like, how did they find out about you? He said some photographer on the internet scrolled through Google Plus and found a bunch of images that he thought were fantastic by amateur photographers. And he's picked like, what is it? Six photographers from around the world, Australia, that he thinks could be the world's, you know, next upcoming photographers and i went 
wow. And he wants to do an interview. And I go, so did you put your, your photography online? Like, is yes, this yeah. like oh, okay, yeah. okay. I shared it on Google plus okay. and the guys, he, I go, who's it, who is it? And he goes, he's a photographer named Trey Radcliffe. And I go, that's the guy who I saw in the video at YouTube when I was on the couch that told me to get a camera, the same guy. So the guy that wanted to do the interview is the same guy that I'd, I'd watched the initial YouTube video. It's inspired me. And I'm like, wow. So I ended up talking with him and we ended up working out. He said, oh, you're Gerard from my, we watched the show. I know the show mind freak. And then I said, yeah, I'm a big fan of yours. He goes, well, I'm a big fan of yours kind of thing. And, <laughs> I, and I said, and at the time, at the time he said, he goes, sorry, it's my wife, Tina in the background. I go, your wife's name's Tina. I said, my wife's name's Tina at the time <laughs> as well. Then I said, yeah, I said, well, let's, let's do a talk. It was my birthday's on and July 9th. And I said, so is mine. Oh my God. <laughs> I love and, it. <laughs> and so, yeah. So this was kind of in, or his was the 10th. No, I think his was the ninth too. It was very close to mine other than the ninth or the 10th. And so, yeah, we're both cancer and we're both, at, so we're the same age. And yeah, so I had this great talk with him. And then I ended up getting into photography and just shooting landscapes. I was outside. It helped me in my recovery because it got me outside walking, breathing. Once again, it got me to realize I could be confident in doing something. And it was different than anything I'd ever done. And so I had nothing to do with magic or television. I was just in nature and I really found peace outside and inside mm -hmm. with a camera. And um, it was perfect timing for you too. It's just, it's it was the timing. Of perfect. It was at that point, I realized that I realized that a video that I had done just one week before my accident was a magic demonstration I did with a guy of where we both twist the hands on a watch mm -hmm. and think of a time. And when we turn the watches over, they match the exact same time to the second. Oh, my goodness. Look, it's so symbolic. And, and I wrote on a piece of paper for him. You're always where you are supposed to be even right now. And that was my last demonstration I did film wow. on YouTube for, before the accident. And I realized that I'm like, that's true. That's not just a magic trick. So magic had become my reality. And I thought, this is real. The stuff that I had been, you know, using sleight like of hand. Manifesting it, like it's manifesting your reality. Yeah. yeah I just realized how the similar, how, how incredibly real that that statement was for me at that time. And, and so over the next few years, my friend that introduced me to my, my new wife, Larry Fong, the cinematographer, he, he had been on my email list and had bought my DVD on magic and books, almost like a student that was teaching him magic. And then when he heard I was in photography, he says, you know, I'm a cinematographer. And I'm like, what's that mean? And he goes, oh, it's just a fancy way of saying I make films. I'm like, oh, that's cool. What kind of films do you make? He says, like Batman, Superman, 300, like huge. He's one of the world's greatest, you know, cinema. I'm like, wow. So he taught me quite a bit about lighting. And I learned a lot from him and his work. And he's just one of the many people, the mentors that I've had in cinematography, you know, and, and then strangely enough, a good friend of mine, Chris Fisher, who's a director and a, a camera operator, I went to set with him and his cinematographer, the DOP is a guy named John Joffin. And he says, you know, Larry Fine goes, I used to be his assistant 28 years ago. I don't <laughs> wow. It's like all tied in, you know? So, yeah. um, so that, yeah, so that, that ended up, that ended up being, uh, and then I won some awards on Google plus for photo awards for North American portrait artist, And, and it just took off and I just ended up shooting, went from shooting landscapes to people to fashion and portraits and some celebrities and athletes. And now I have a studio right downtown Vancouver and I'm just loving it. I, the people I meet, the adventures I get to, to go on. I started a little vlog series that's just called I am kind of what you're doing with the people I shoot. So you, people can hear their stories 
because a picture can only say so much. And I like the idea of all the identities we have in the world. I think the first thing we have to all identify as is human beings. And that's the most important thing that brings us together. And so people come in, I have all kinds of people from all walks of life. And any of your viewers can go to my website, andrewgerardphotography.com and click on the, click on the blog and watch any of them because they're really fascinating. And it's good for me because I get to shut up and let them talk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what, Andrew, I looked into your website and your pictures are absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I love how you capture the moment. I love how it's interesting. Like there's a story behind that second or like, like a split of a second actually that you took, you know what I mean? So, and it's intentional and I could see it and I encourage every single listener to actually go into the website and see it because it's just, it's mind blowing, you know? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's my world with photography is two parts. There's one part where I'm hired by companies and brands and, and to do commercial work which I love and is a privilege. And I, I'm so blessed to be able to do that. And then the other part is creative work where we're not working for clients or money. We're working for art. And I work sometimes with artists or models or people to create images that I feel tell a story. And uh, yeah, so that was, that's uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. There's, there's one little chunk that I, that we might talk about for a second. If you're interested in music, I'm interested in all of your stories. Don't worry. When you first, when you first contacted me and said, you know, serendipitous, you know, topics. I'm like, this one's really serendipitous. This was, I'd grown up a guitar player. I think we covered that, but I could never sing. In grade five, I remember in, in singing class, I think I tried to sing and my voice cracked and the teacher said something like, oh, you got a frog in your throat. And the kids laughed. <laughs> and from that day, I convinced myself I can't sing. I'm, there's no way yeah. I can sing and, and I don't have a voice. And so I just, that was it my whole life. People asked, you want to do karaoke? I'm like, no, no, I can't sing. I, I'm horrible. I can't sing. And that was my story that I told myself and I believed it. Until after my car accident and I was on that couch and I started photography, I got a knock at the door and it was a neighbor and it was a guy named Mark, an Irish guy, Mark Downey. And he was a very nice guy from Ireland. And he said, I'm a vocal teacher and I'm going to be teaching lessons across the hall with the piano. And I go, oh, go ahead. I love music. Make as much noise as you want. I don't, I don't care. He's like, no, no, I need a guinea pig. He said, I saw you with a guitar. Can I steal you to, to try a, a, a class out with you? And I went, oh, I don't sing though. He says, no, I mean, I'm a, I, that's the thing is I teach people to sing. I go, no, but I, I don't have a voice. I can't sing. And he says, well, he goes, I have some Guinness. And I go, all right, I'll come over. So we had a Guinness. <laughs> so, so, and he started playing, you know, the piano and we started slow. And after right away with 15 minutes, he stopped and he says, are you sure you, you've never sang before? I go, no, but I'm a musician. I play guitar. So I know all the, you know, what you're doing on the piano and I can make sense of it. And he said, I think you have a unique tone to your voice and I think you should write a song. And I went, what? And no one ever said that to me. Nobody said, I think you should sing, you know? And I was like, okay. And uh, so I went back home and I wrote a song and I knocked on his door like 20 minutes later. He goes, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I wrote a song. He's like that fast. I go, yeah. And I wrote, I wrote a song about my car accident, about having a brain injury and what I was going through. And so I sat and sang it for him and he was recording it on his iPhone. And I could tell it really moved him and me. And I kind of sat there and went, whoa, what was that? And, you know, and uh, he said, I think you should record this song. And so I sent the recording on the phone to my uh, very good friend named Ron, Ron Pink, who is a, another magician friend, but he's also owns Phonogenic Studios in LA and he's a record producer, an award-winning record. He's amazing. He's one of the most talented guys I know. And I sent him and said, hey, listen to this. And he goes like, cool, who's singing? And I said, me. And he goes, I didn't know you sing. And I go, 
I didn't until today. I guess this guy told me I could sing and I should. And so he says, why don't you fly down and we'll record it? And he owns <laughs> him, him. I love that everybody's asking you to fly down wherever they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is crazy. I don't even have air miles. And so, so Ran is there and Rami, his studio partner and my friend Rami Jaffe, who plays um, keyboards in the Foo Fighters and, and Wallflowers is nice. there. And I got some, and so I got some encouragement from them and Rand recorded the song and he's just like, this is great. And, and so we put this song together and I start sending it to my family and people start saying, you know, he goes, do you have any more? And I go, yeah, I got six. So I came back to Vancouver and I started recording with another producer friend named Scott Young at Alchemy Sound. Scotty's an amazing guy, my age. And he was helping me piece together these six songs. And I felt like I created something just for me and just a special. And they were all about my life and very acoustic-y and folk stuff. And, you know, never thinking to release them just for me and my family. But as it turns out, everyone says, oh, can you send me that and Dropbox that and we transfer that? And so my friend says, you know, why don't you just put them on iTunes? That way people can at least just download it. You know, it doesn't matter. They were just easier to get. I go, okay. So we, we put it out. And my buddy, Chris Fisher, this other director and cinematographer, invites me to set because he had my CD that he'd given to the makeup artist. And the set was called Aftermath, the show starring Anne Hesch. And Anne Hesch had heard the song in makeup and was really quite moved by it. So Chris says, come to set. And I came down to set and he says, bring your guitar. And he goes, we're going to film a music video. And I'm like, where? And he goes, here on set at Riverview in this mental hospital where they're filming. And so he's filming me and the crew's helping out. And I'm like, this is amazing. You know, I'm like, what is it's this? It's happening so fast. Like it's happening so fast. And I couldn't believe it. And recorded this song called Falling to Pieces and recorded a music video. And then he talked to Ann Hesh and she said, I love that song. How can I help? And he says, well, you could be in the video. So she goes, great. So they shut down production for a couple of hours. And she's starring in the video, dancing and lips and moving around in the music video. So if people go to YouTube and search Andrew Gerard falling to pieces, you'll see Anne Hesh in the music video. And wow. I'm just thinking, okay, I can die now. I have a recorded music. <laughs> I have, this is incredible. This was so meant to be. This was like amazing. Oh. Like, like you're talking about green lights, open doors, everything. Well, well yeah. yeah. And, and, but I think of like, that's what I had gained, but the sacrifice I had to get rear-ended by a truck and a brain injury to get there. Do you know what I mean? So that's like the yin and yang. Yeah, you know, yeah. So, so, and I thought, okay, that's it. I can die now. And at that <laughs> point, my friend calls me, says, Hey, check your YouTube video. And I go, I click on it. And there's like, there's like uh, some views piling up. I'm like, wow. Like I wasn't, you know, I don't have a big channel or following, but people are listening to this. And one of the comments says, this is great. Love the sound of your voice or something. And it was a guy named Tom Straley. And my friend, I go, Tom Strilly. And he goes, yeah, he goes, that guy is a guitar player. He like writes and plays with like Justin Bieber and Neo. Like he's a famous songwriter, musician from LA. And he discovered and so you, yeah. I sent him a message. He just said, thank you so much for your comment and, and yada, yada, yada. And I was in LA at the time. And then he says, if you're ever in LA, give me a call. I'd love to meet up. And I said, I'm in LA now at the Foo Fighters studio with my buddy here. And he's like, we're recording some music. And he goes like, oh, I'll come by. And then Rand says, ask him if he'll play on a song. And I go, I don't know if this is inappropriate, Tom, but could I get you to play on a song? And he goes like, sure. So he shows <laughs> up with six guitars. And this man is the nicest, sweetest person I've ever met. He's just about maybe 10, five or 10 years older than me, but felt like a father, just the, the nicest guy. And he sits down and he learns my song in three seconds. And he goes in and he plays guitar in it. Now I've got Justin Bieber's guitar player playing. And he comes out. 
And Rand is happy. The producer is like, this is amazing. This is really, and it was a song called Forest Fire. And uh, there's a video for that too. So we finished the song and he goes, what else do you have? And Rand looks at me and goes, play him the other one. I start playing it. And he goes, let's do that one too. We end up doing three songs in the studio that day with this guy. Oh recording my God. And finishing three songs. I love this. I love this so much. And at the same time, my friend Chris, who had finished on Aftermath, the show, he uh, messages me. He says, well, how's it going? I go, good. Justin Bieber's songwriter guy is in the studio playing in the song. And I send him Forest Fire. And I said, he goes, this is amazing. He goes, we got to shoot a music video for this. I go, agreed. <laughs> and he goes, when are, you, when are you done? I said, I'm flying home tomorrow. He goes, fly to Calgary. Fly, and I'll pick you up at the airport. I go, what? He goes, <laughs> We have to film in Banff. It's minus 30 and we're going to film at Lake Louise and on the snow and we're going to go on an adventure. And I was like, what? This is crazy. So I went from plus 30 degrees to minus 30 degrees. And the next day I'm with my hat on, on a dock on a frozen lake and out Banff, beautiful nature, get, filming a music video for a song we just recorded a day before. And in a nutshell, that's happened now about four more times with me and Chris Fisher flying down to Mexico to the Salton Sea and going from Beverly Hills Hotel in my friend's Austin Martin, driving across the country to film just on these wild last I minute adventures. I love this adventure. Oh, it, it, that, that made know, me... It, the beauty it. of this all is that you didn't plan it. Hmm. If, you, if you tried to plan something like this, it wouldn't have become the way it is. Oh, it just, no. it's like, it's as if it was planned for you and you just went along with this adventure and it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't believe it. So I couldn't believe it. So now here we are a few years later and, and now I've got two albums out and 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 then, you know, the, these songs and then the latest album called Run Away With Me is, or sorry, Run Away With You is a deliberate album to release. So it's much more commercial and poppy. I wrote it for people to hear it. The first one, I didn't want anyone to hear it. It was just for me and my family. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I was like, yeah, this one. That's but it was so relatable and a lot of people just related to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then... And, and the funny thing is, I've now taken a complete departure musically from commercial music or folk pop, and I've really just gotten to simplicity. And I started to go back and study and listen to some of the old blues masters, Robert Johnson and these guys, where they sit in a room with a chair, one mic and a guitar and just sing. And I was shoot directing a music video for a woman at a big, big sound studio that we'd rented. It was thousands of dollars. And she was just didn't feel like taping it that day she goes I'm not in the mood today we'll just cancel it and I'm like but we paid for everything so that's fine so we're there and my friend Don McLeod who's a country singer he said you got your guitar why don't you just sit and sing and play a song we had this one chair and we set up a mic and it was a song called who do you love and it was about me going through my divorce at that and all the emotions that I felt and I sat down with this guitar I didn't even have shoes on I'm bare feet and in a dark room with one light and I just sang my heart out and played and it's a little out of key. It's not a great rec recording, but it's very real. And it reminded me of that Robert Johnson style of just raw realness. So I went from having the biggest studios and best cameras and best lighting and clothes and all stuff to just strip down nothing, like literally raw. So if anyone goes to YouTube and punches in, you know, who do you love, Andrew Gerard, you'll see the video and you hear the song and listen to the words. And yeah, that song for me is the most most real I can be. And I, I sing about things that I could never talk about. Yeah. That's and what, that's, what, this is what listeners love to listen to. So yeah. um, where can they find their, your music in general? Like what is uh, can um, your website and, and yeah. Andrew, my website is Andrew Gerard And for the people that I, I cringe when I see the official part in websites, 
<laughs> there was a guy that bought my name and messaged me, says, I own andrewgerard.com. You want to buy it for like $6,000? I'm like, what? No, like, why would you? Do so I guess people do that. So yeah. yeah, at the time I was advised to just go Andrew Gerard official in case there was any secondary ones that came out after. So I'm like, all right, but andrewgerardofficial.com is my website. You can see all of the music there. You can click links to Spotify and iTunes, or you can just buy it directly from me, uh, whatever you like. And then there's a YouTube channel as well. There's a playlist of all the videos. There's about 12 of them now. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's very strange. Here I am sitting going, I've had so many lives. I love it. I love yeah. your stories. I love, I just, I just love how everything just happened. And to me, I believe that it came from having an idea and believing in yourself. you like, you've always felt that there was something inside of you. You've had ideas you manifested, like how you, you were, you tried to look into the magic book, even though you weren't supposed to, but something told you inside of the, no, you wanted to do that. So there's like this inner voice that actually leads you to to your next step and you yeah. acted and implemented upon it. And then everything just fell up, it just follows. So what I wanna tell listeners is like looking at Andrew's life is believe in your inner fire, um, go after it. Even if people say no, because <laughs> a lot of people can say no, like how a lot of people told him he can't sing, but it turned out that he can sing, right? So that was cool. And then the power of showing up, you showed up, you, you showed up and every time you showed up, you bump into these people that lead you to your successes and, and open one door to another. And it just never stops. It never stops. And instead of being stuck in that hole because of you not opening the door, you became like Jim Carrey. You became that yes man in a way. You took the risks, not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing what, what the outcome is, but you followed your intuition and your gut because at the end of the day, you had a dream about yourself. You knew that there was something about it and then you made it happen even though it might not be what you wanted it to be or it, but it's always it, but it was successful in in your own way you know so yeah. you know i, I want to say one uh, two things but one i think when people hear the word success there's there's a problem with the word and the word success often leads people to believe to think about money and money is a byproduct of success to me my definition of success is knowing that you're becoming the person you were meant to be. Exactly, yeah. And once you do that, then everything else will happen. And the second thing I want to mention is being a, a TV producer and creator of magic and writer and cinematographer, I play a lot of roles behind the scenes now. So when I'm doing cinematography and films, there's a star in front of the camera. You don't see me. Yeah. When I'm writing TV shows and scripts, other people are saying my words. They don't see me. When um, you know I'm doing magic or producing all these things, even on other people's albums, I'm a songwriter too. So I've written on about 12 people's albums in the past couple of years and they're doing, uh, so it's amazing. And, but there's, it, you don't see me. So I've often been a bit of a ghost sometimes to help other people and support them because that's part of my journey as well. That, that really fulfills me. And I have my own people behind the scenes that, that fuel me. And those two people are my mom, Julie, and my dad, Rob. And my, my dad, Rob, wrote me a letter last week, an email. And he said, you know, when you were young, I didn't understand how schools weren't set up to, to help people like you grow and nurture. You're just a pure creative, you know? And he's a scientist. He's a, a world-renowned scientist, Roby McDonald. And, and he was very academic, but he, know, but he recognized that. I mean, him and my mom always supported me, always said, and I think the idea that you have to be out there fighting your own fight and climbing and climbing. It's, 
is 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 a part of it but the feeling of the weight of people behind you is good so if you want to if you want to get that you need to give that so anybody listening think of yourself think of three people right now in your life that you could support right now that you could text call send an email to and say hey you're i believe what you're doing is is good i love you know be honest you know like yeah, to support them those few words can change their life you know whole difference i agree i absolutely yeah. agree yes. it really really does so my my yeah so thank you to, to my mom and dad because you know like remember in grade five the teacher told me that oh you got a frog in your throat you can't sing that's it that destroyed my that almost made me not be a singer almost i didn't believe i believed it for you know 40 years but it's like yeah it's so words are powerful choose them wisely and and you know it's it find your flow in your river and lay back and look up at the sun enjoy it this is a beautiful beautiful ride yes well andrew thank you so much thank you so so much i've enjoyed this today a lot and you know what? I want to have you back again because I believe that you're still going to have all these serendipities coming up and you'll just... Oh, there's more. There's yeah. more. <laughs> we'll do an, an episode two with Andrew. <laughs> I love it. I'd love um, to come back. Thank you. Yes, Mr. Viking. Well, it's so oh. nice to, to talk to you and tell, please tell listeners where they can find you other than the websites. Yeah, andrewgerardphotography.com for photography and andrewgerardofficial.com. There'll be social media links on both those sites, but Instagram, Andrew Gerard Photography, Facebook, same thing. Yeah, you can find me in Andrew Gerard Photography pretty much anywhere. And there's links on all my sites as well. That's good. Yeah. Well, thank you, you so much. And thank you. Talk thank to you, you soon. All right, Skull. Wow, wow, wow. Wasn't that amazing? You can find Andrew on Instagram and Facebook at Andrew Gerard Photography. You can also check his website, andrewgerardphotography.com. I will leave the information in the description note. Andrew happily shared one of his songs with us today, Falling to Pieces. But first, let's go over the takeaways from today's episode. Take high risks. Don't put yourself in a box. One thing leads to another. Say yes to open more opportunities and possibilities. You can reinvent yourself, but you have to give yourself permission. You have to be your own life coach. You have to sacrifice who you are for who you could become. Do what you love, the money will come. Never compromise on your morals and your values. Knowing your yes from your no is like knowing the light from shadow. You can't have one without the other. We learn and grow from our mistakes. Words are powerful, so choose them wisely. Find your flow and your river. People will invest in you when you invest in yourself. Show up and helping others will give you fulfillment. And now let's listen to Falling to Pieces.
can't see, I can't breathe. Won't somebody help me? I'm falling to pieces. One day.